This moment in our wild on our public lands is brought to you by our partners at the Wilderness Society. Starting out on the shoulders of conservation giants like Aldo Leopold, Bob Marshall, and honored in the imagery of Ansel Adams, the Wilderness Society has had a mission protecting our public land since 1935. Our wild is part of us all. In this time of unprecedented threat to the places you care about, please consider learning and offering your support at wilderness.org. Thank you. And now on to another story of inspiration from our wild outside. For those of you listening out there who have either lived on or spent a lot of time on rivers, I've got a question. Ever find yourself fully immersed, captivated, staring at the eddies and ripples, only to discover the hour slipping by? Why does it feel sometimes that the rivers of our life don't just roll on by, but perhaps flow through us, helping us to find that cleaner focus in our lives, a moment of inspiration, perhaps our better selves? Well, don't just take my word for it. Turns out a guy named Ernest Hemingway waxed poetically about the spirit of rivers too. From his deck, not too far from where I sit now, about a quarter mile up on the Wood River here in Sun Valley. Got me thinking about another artist moved by rivers. Filmmaker R.C. Cohn and I caught up before an evening session at the Five Point Film Festival in April. And we talked about the influence of rivers on his life and his calling to help protect them through the stories of people whose rivers also run through them. If you're a fisherman, a Montanan, a lover of the Yellowstone, or just captivated by the flow, this episode is for you. Born from our experiences as explorers. And forged by a commitment to the positive change we want to see in the world. This is the Adventure Activist Podcast. It's so easy on the river when you're drinking a beer with your buds to just think everything is okay. But when a thing like, when you see thousands upon thousands of whitefish floating down in your cathedral, it's impossible to ignore. That's one of my personal loves of Montana is that there's such... We're very purple. We're very purple in the sense that nothing is nothing is red and blue. Nothing, nothing is black and white. So what I did was I went to, I spent a month and a half in the Bahamas, I spent a month and a half in Iceland, and I spent a month and a half in Argentina hanging out with three different guides and comparing and contrasting the similarities around them. And that's where it really hit home for me in the sense that people are fascinating. All around the world, they're fascinating. 
eventually you realize that the beauty lies within the people's connection to the outdoor world. You know, that's what I wanted to start hearing about. Welcome to the Adventure Activist Podcast. I'm your host, Terry O'Connor. This is the place for meaningful conversations with accomplished athletes, inspiring adventurers and influential activists. Through their journeys, stories, and life discoveries, we deconstruct how our guests add more meaningful value to the world and do some good with their passion for adventure. Welcome to episode 12 with filmmaker R.C. Cohn. R.C. took his Midwest roots to Montana at 18, found rivers, and never looked back. Taking a degree in environmental studies and a concentration in photojournalism, he sought to share the impact the West had on him, but discovered in the stories that he unveiled, the true beauty lied in the people's connection to the outdoor world. That task has taken him to rivers around the world, talking to people who cherish and defend the tributaries that connect us all in the end. We'll hear the story of the good people of the Paradise River Valley in Montana, bound together in their fight for the Yellowstone River, and the curious but inspirational predicament of a miner finding his path and protecting his sacred refuge. Our conversation started in the camper before the evening program at Five Point Film. RC had just spent some time talking to the kids at a local school, and we talked a little bit about his roots and how he found his home in Montana. grew up in the suburbs of Chicago, which isn't exactly the most interesting place to grow up. I grew up where the suburbs met the cornfields. And I was lucky enough to have a little bit of rural, you know, woods time growing up there, but it certainly wasn't enough. And nobody really understood that. People wanted to just get in trouble in like the convenience store parking lot or whatever we do in the suburbs to get in trouble, right? But the minute that I moved to Montana at 18 to go to the University of Montana, it really was a life changer. It was like, I there's a lot more for me to be doing than what I've been doing the past, whatever, eight years yeah. in let me, Chicago. Let me step back. How did, please, how, did, please. how does a kid from Chicago think to go to Montana to go to university? I mean, what was what was it that, that created that allure for you growing up there in the suburbs? I wanted to get out and, you know, applying to colleges, looking at the prices of colleges and the colleges that you can get into. Sometimes you, you sometimes you can't dictate where you're exactly going. And University of Montana was a really good option for me. It had a lot going on that I wanted to do. It was within my price range, et cetera. And I wanted to get out. I, I, I actually applied to a bunch of schools in Colorado and, you know, all the all over the place, but Montana kind of ended up, once I visited there, I was like, this is something special. Was so, there a mystery or a lure to, to the West? I mean, just to... <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. As a kid growing up in the suburbs of Chicago, my dad was like an insurance salesman. You know, he took us camping, but it certainly wasn't this idealistic outdoor lifestyle that we are so lucky to live out in the West in so many ways, you know? So I never had that. And so the minute that I saw that it was possible for me to kind of have that, I yeah. sent it. How did you find out about it? I mean, was it magazines? Was it a hobby? Was there a film? I mean, can you think about what your exposure was to learn about the West and Montana living in Chicago? 
at 18, I, I loved snowboarding. Weirdly enough, I loved snowboarding in Chicago. We had this place called Raging Buffalo, which is a snowboard-only mountain, which is very rare in the United States. It's got two uh, tow ropes, and it, it has too many jumps and rails all stuck together. And that, I mean, that's where I learned yeah. to snowboard in some Let me get this right. I just want to make sure I got the name right. Yeah. Raging Buffalo. Raging Buffalo. Snowboard. Only. <laughs> Snowboard only, two lift toes, awesome. you know, El- okay. Algonquin, Illinois. All right. So, yeah, you, you know, the opportunity to snowboard was there, but I wanted more, basically. And so that was really the motivating factor was to get to the mountains. And, and you know, Montana was a little off the beaten path. I wanted to go weird with it at 17 uh-huh. years old, and yeah. I did it, you know, so... Yeah, for the same reasons that every 17-year-old wants to do something weird and potentially contrarian and or an act of revolt or protest. You nailed (laughs) it. I suspect. You nailed it. Um, You nailed it. So uh, what do you recall kind of captured you when you ended up in in Missoula? I think it was the people in Montana. Hmm. And it still is. And we're going to talk a little more about that, I know. But it certainly was the people in Montana that I had a crew of 20 people who wanted to get up and go snowboarding early and get up there just like I did, which I never really had that kind of community in Chicago. You know, it was a totally different priority set. People were doing very different things. And I found these people who all they wanted to do was spend time in the mountains, you know, and we, we were just kind of talking about the tribe. Yeah. You know, I found my tribe out there and I haven't, haven't been to the Midwest in years, <laughs> you know, I haven't gone back. So. Yeah. And so what kind of activities did you get in with your tribe then kind of bond you together? At the- I kind of say that uh, when you move to Montana, you're, you're standard issued a snowboard and a fly rod. Winter's in the mountains, summer's on the rivers. Yeah. And what is it that you find with fishing? It's funny how social fishing can be. You kind of think of the romantic brad pitt standing on a rock in the middle of a river shadow casting by himself when actually we spend a lot of time in boats with your best friends and you all the only thing you have to do for the day is spend time with those people and that's that's really important to be able to take that time with the people that you love right the other thing about fishing that i absolutely fell in love with especially as a filmmaker is with like skiing and snowboarding you're restricted to mountains you're restricted to resorts sometimes you're restricted to winter Whereas fishing everywhere in the world is open game. Literally, out, out your back door on the creek to the Seychelles fishing for GTs, right? You've got this broad spectrum of what you can do, and you, you, there's always a challenge there. You, you can never, it's like, it's like anything, you can never master it. It's truly something to hold fascination for the rest of my life, for sure. And. Your desire to start to become a storyteller, do you think that was born out of the place of the people? That's a great question. Um, it probably started off as the place, to be totally honest with you. I love the mountains. I love being out here, et cetera. Let's, let's just kind of document these adventures. But you learn pretty quick when you've got a camera and you're curious and you're stopping by places trying to find this find find the shot whatever you learn that people become pretty darn important to your story and you can't avoid them basically in some ways you know, you know and and so i i think they kind of it progressed from kind of this young want to make images and make beautiful things but eventually you realize that the beauty lies within the people's connection 
to the outdoor world. You know, that's what I wanted to start hearing about. And so what I learned, this is kind of a different take on that, was uh, in my environmental studies program, which is a very there's a lot of essay writing, right? And I'm not I'm certainly not the greatest writer. Average, definitely average writer, <laughs> but proven, objectively proven average writer. Uh, um, and I learned that I could take still photographs and do less writing. My teacher somehow accepted that, and I learned how to. Yeah, I know. I'm, you're isn't, there some, your isn't there something about how many words in a photo? I don't know. I don't know the saying. I, I was bending rules. Okay. That's for yeah. sure. But I did realize that I could. How powerful a photograph was. I, I learned that in school, trying to rack my head on how to write these essays that they would have us write. And I realized that a photograph can do a lot with that. And that's kind of what pushed me to keep pursuing that. It's possible. It's totally possible to say, to kind of find your own voice within these images. Right. That's, where, that's where it showed me that it was possible. Right. Obviously, you, you found that calling and probably you had some assumptions about what that career would look like for you at the beginning right i mean you're kind of you're learning the mechanics of it you're making assumptions of the way so um i'm going to throw some things out there which are assumptions and you can contradict or mm -hmm. disagree with me but I, I imagine you kind of saw as you're looking at your five-year plan you're like okay well i need to create some uh, captivating visual imagery i need to connect with uh, a brand mm -hmm and that brand's audience or consumer so that I can get sponsorship and so I actually can get underwriting uh, for these films that I'm producing. Is that, uh, that kind of how you started out? Is that how you formulated the beginning of your path in a way? Well, I spent three years in a fire lookout after school and spent a lot of time reading, spent a lot of time shooting, very personal, you know, it's very, got to get comfortable in your own skin up there, right? And that, and that was by far a very important time for me as an artist personally. And from there, I took an internship with Teton Gravity Research, TGR, as like a web editor, as like a forum the the ski forum moder moderator so i was working kind of behind the scenes on a computer but they and that very year that i went there they were phasing out their 16 millimeter bolex cameras and picking up the the dslr kind of revolution was just happening and so that was technology that was very much so in my hands and so as todd jones and these old school amazing cinematographers who have been shooting film forever were learning this digital trade I was kind of there just listening right yeah. just kind of there picking up what I could and it kind of went from there and for me I saw what they were doing with ski obviously an incredible job and I saw that fly fishing didn't really have that culture and that like people weren't doing these sponsored fi a, a lot of these sponsored films and so I kind of took what TGR was doing in my own way and brought it to fly fishing. Before springing forward onto his career after Teton Gravity Research, I asked RC to reflect back on his years as a fire lookout, his early explorations into music and photography, and the value of seclusion in developing your craft. 
it was like immersion. It was like learning a language. It was like immersion in a sense where, you know, it hits 5 p.m. You don't have to be in the fire lookout anymore. It is you're up on top of a mountain. There's nobody around for miles, right? So, you know, what are you going to do? You got to fill the time somehow. And yeah, I played a lot of banjo. I read hundreds of books. But yeah, it's a great, you know, power hour starts then basically, right? For mm-hmm. for good photography. So yeah, I spent a lot of time shooting. And yeah, it was a it was an exploration of hobby, right? I did have this job that gave me this space to just explore banjo, explore these books, explore photography, you know, do climbing, go hiking, push it in the outdoors a little bit. So it was just this incredible space for a 23, 24-year-old to kind of discover what where am I going? What do I like to do? What's the plan, basically? So, it seems like a really private catalog. How many people have actually seen what you produced during that period of time? I actually have a movie up called Look. You could look it up. It's a little. Okay. It's it's kind of embarrassing. That's for <laughs> sure. It's it's a little. And so it's actually very interesting about that for me as an artist. I was transitioning then. It's all done by still photographs. But it's but it's mo- it's a motion piece, and I didn't know like for example I didn't know how to do proper time lapses in the fire lookout, right? You're you're in a fire lookout, you'd want to do some time lapses. So I did all my time lapses manually. So I'd sit there with a watch, thirty seconds, click. So I my time la- you know my time lapses would take three four hours. I had nothing else to do, <laughs> just manual time lapses. So it was kind of my first foray into playing with motion. It gave me a space to to fail basically to make bad stuff, you know. And and that's it's great. It's a good. It's it's every artist needs that in some way. Yeah, so. and I I think anybody that's developing a craft needs a concentrated period of time and. Some people, the model is seclusion, uh, just to get some deep work done without distraction. I think that's actually one of the biggest challenges these days to developing a craft or a meaningful body of work is uh, distraction. It's it's funny how they gave a, a kid from the suburbs of Chicago <laughs> the best place in the valley, right? <laughs> you know, so yeah, it was it was fun. It's because you said yes. There was an opening. Yeah, like, right. oh, Okay, I don't mind. Yep. I don't mind being up there by myself yep. for a while. Um, all right, well, let's backtrack. So then um, those t- those years, three years? Three summers. Three summers, yeah. essentially. Yep. Yep. Um, and then ended up taking that, that position with TGR for a little bit. How long were you with them, kind of learning in, in you know, learning their craft and kind of that editing? I did a six-month internship with them on the website, as yeah. I said, and then worked for them for year or two after that and then kind of took off and started my own thing as i said that's when things started formalizing that's when i said i need to do this and then i need to do this and i need to work on this and Mm -hmm. etc so yeah that's when that process definitely started just start developing the professional body of work yeah um when do you think some of your first efforts were really pushed on uh, the narrative, actually having players within your films, a protagonist, a storyline, thinking a little bit more sophisticated about storyboarding a personal story or that story of people's relation to the land, as we said before. Well, it's funny because, and I won't ever do it again, my first film was about a trip I took. Mm-hmm. 
And so that's where narrative had to happen, yeah. right? There, I, I would be so boring <laughs> without some kind of narrative, right? And that, and that's a great thing for me to for me to realize early as a filmmaker. So that was my first film. My second film, that the first film was called Breathe. My second film was called Tributaries, and there is where I really learned the power of people. So what I did was I went to, I spent a month and a half in the Bahamas, I spent a month and a half in Iceland, and I spent a month and a half in Argentina hanging out with three different guides and comparing and contrasting the similarities around them. And that's where it really hit home for me in the sense that people are fascinating. All around the world, they're fascinating. And and when you when you give them a chance to talk and you you know, you bring you, when a Bahamian and an Icelander who have never met are kind of speaking the same language, you find a little bit of that magic there. Or I did at least, right? And when you say same language, are you talking about unified over the, the activity, the environment or the activities of fishing uh, in, in your medium? Was that what you, what you were yes, kind of talking yeah, about? Yes, yeah, it it's a fly fishing film. Yeah. And so the same language was, you know, we realize that the water and we realize that the water in Iceland is the same as the water in the Bahamas. They're no, you know, they are absolutely connected, and that's actually where the where the name of my co company came from, Tributaries Digital Cinema, came from that movie and that kind of realization that like you're when you're in the Bahamas bathing in that water, it's absolutely connected up to Iceland pretty quickly. Well, in my mind, that that just triggers it. it a perfect segue of this concept of water tying people together. Um, let's let's move to the Yellowstone and talk about that a little bit. And, and um, you know, the Yellowstone River and uh, the gateway to the Yellowstone, Paradise Valley, which you highlight um, in in your film. Um, you know, it doesn't just run through the county, but in the narrative, you try to tell it really does tie that community together. Uh, and also ties them together over a, a cause and an issue that is very much highlighted within the film. So um, how did you find out, uh, I guess, about the issue or get the idea to put together this film? I've been wanting to work with the Greater Yellowstone Coalition for a while because I know they've done some great work. Um, and I've been working with the fly fishing brand Sage Fly Fishing, and they have been wonderful to me in the sense of letting me take some creative runs at some things. But I think what really kind of punched, literally punched me in the face, not literally punched me in the face, I, I hate when people misuse literally, <laughs> and I just did it. Uh, what is it? Uh, figuratively yes. punched me in the face <laughs> was uh, in 2016, there was a huge whitefish die-off. Uh, uh, low flows and really high water temperatures brought about a parasite that kind of bloomed, that sits within these whitefish, but bloomed this year because of this stressor that was on them. And it just made it very real for me that my home river, that I spend my summers fishing with my friends, it's such a special, it's, my, it's our cathedral, right? It's our sacred place that we spend so much time to see it in these dire straits, to see it close down, to see it all over the, uh, at least Montana news made a couple national news, you know, and that it's so easy on the river when you're drinking a beer with your buds to just think everything is okay. But when a thing like, when you see thousands upon thousands of whitefish floating down in your cathedral, it's impossible to ignore. 
you know, it's impossible not to be, or for me, it was impossible not to be affected by it. And I think from there, it was like, I'm looking for any opportunity I can to get involved in this river to help out in any way I can. And we kind of talked about the other day is like, I'm not a great science person, right? I don't, I don't know how to hands-on fix those whitefish or whatever it is, but I do know that I could tell a story and I'm, and I've been lucky enough to travel and tell stories from all different places around the world. But as soon as that, as soon as kind of that whitefish summer happened, I want to tell a story at home. I wanted to tell a story at home. It was very important to me. I was on my way. I got lost in my day. I was driving around to a place I used to know. Now I got some time to get out of my mind, seeing stars in the moon while I'm thinking about you. Well, it's hard now living in this town when the world makes you question your own thinking and your heart feels torn so you leave it on the shore let the tides bring you something you can believe in i remember and with that emotional engagement to tell a story at home we expand on how R.C. explored and developed the narrative of the Yellowstone, a river that ran through, but more so, tied together his community. That story lived in the characters and people that found common ground on its shores. We'll let R.C. expand on the process and message of his film, Last Call, Our Fight for the Yellowstone. And your heart feels torn, so you leave it the shore, let the tides bring you something you can believe in. Well, what really changed it for us is Daniel Anderson. He's one of the first characters that we introduce. He's a third generation Montanan who his family has been in the Tom Minor Basin, which is kind of the southern part of the Paradise Valley. So you're looking north up the entire Yellowstone River. He, you know, they wake up looking at the Yellowstone River down in the valley, which is very cool. And he told us a story, which we, which we do our best to recreate, about his grandpa, an old rancher, took him up overlooking the valley and said come back here in 20 years and count the lights again because things are going to change fast things are going to change real fast and that that really to hear somebody 20 years ago it's basically 20 years ago i didn't have the forethought all these whitefish had to die for me for, for me to do something but for this visionary you can call him a visionary he saw it and and that's kind of what we so daniel was our first character for that very reason because this vision 20 years ago was kind of is is perpetuated by his grandson and we thought that was really cool it also worked well with the uh department of interior and the forest service are talking about a 20-year moratorium on uh, on banning in the community's sense is that 20 years is not enough and we felt like we could really illustrate that through daniel's story of being a you know, 12 year old, 20 years ago, looking at an empty valley and seeing how much it's changed over the past 20 years. It seems to be like a perfect launching off point for the story. 
He's our vehicle, he, yeah. and he also literally has a beautiful old truck that we got to follow <laughs> around, so he's kind of actually the vehicle. Once so. again, another another picture <laughs> telling a lot of, uh, kind of encapsulating a lot of words in your narrative. Um, and through him, did you, uh, I imagine connections are made one person to the next, so is that how the other cast of characters started to evolve? From so that? a lot of ca the cast of characters is from... Uh, Greater Yellowstone Coalition. They are big supporters. They're all business owners who are within the coalition and who are big and who are big proponents of using our natural assets instead of an extractive type thing, right? But Daniel, yeah, that's exactly it. You meet one person and things start mushrooming pretty quick. Uh, you meet Daniel, and I come to find out that he is good friends with Bill Payne from Little Feet who, you know, a premier band back in the day, and Bill Payne has been touring with the Eagles, the Doobie Brothers, he's played with everyone, he knows the whole, all the crews, etc. Um, through Daniel, I was introduced to Bill Payne. I mean, Daniel has, has an old Bill Payne grand piano up in his barn in Tom Minor Basin. It's, it's pretty cool, it's pretty cool. And so, through Daniel, we met Bill Payne, who offered anything he could. I guess as, as far as the activism issue uh, behind this film and the threat with a proposed mine, was that something that was on the radar screen uh, going into this, or was it something that you were educated more on as a result of reaching out to the coalition or even speaking with someone like Bill? You know, it was more, that was a campaign that, are, that was already happening. They've got this great slogan that the Yellowstone is worth more than gold. And that's some, those are, you see those signs everywhere where that's I'm right. from, okay. right? And so, yeah, I knew about it. I, I've heard about it through, through the community, right? As a passive, as a passive listener. But once, you know, I kind of found the money for the film and I found, I found the coalition to kind of help me put people together and messaging and stuff like that. I, that's when it was, had good time to go head first. So the coalition actually helped you craft a little bit with who to reach out to and, and some of the characters too to speak with. Absolutely, as a That's part fantastic. of as a yeah. part of the business coalition, those are the, those are exactly the, the people who own the hotels, the people who had all those guide trips canceled on them for the whitefish kill and these things. You know, the people who are on the ground need that water there, need that clean water there, need Yellowstone to stay in a pristine shape to draw the millions of visitors and create the economy of the Paradise Valley, right? So That's really interesting. It's something we, I didn't pick up before, but actually it's the, the, the people vested behind this movement uh, to preserve the gateway are actually helping to drive some of the story development themselves for you uh, and with you. And for themselves as well. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I don't want any. I don't want to put selfishness on anyone, but but our business. Yeah, we're we're speaking in economics, sort of. Yeah. You know, our their businesses are very important to them, just like our businesses are important to us. Um, and their businesses depend on having clean, safe, fresh, full of fish water, right? Mm -hmm. And Yellowstone being being not ruined by any gold mines or anything like that, right? So. You reach out to a, a, a quite a diverse group of individuals uh, that that have uh, something at stake. Uh, maybe you can introduce some of the some of the characters uh, beyond Bill Payne uh, that you the interview in this uh, film. Let's see. Sabina Strauss of 
it, the Yellowstone Bison Inn. It's right north of the, you know the gates of Yellowstone, south of Gardner. Um, she says it really well in the movie, and I don't want to ruin it. Watch the movie, uh, <laughs> but but she but she says if we had no river, the banks would take my business, and I'd have to pack up and leave. She, I think her line is. Not only do I live here, I make a living here. And I think that's really strong. And I think that can resonate with with a lot of people. And that's that's one of my personal loves of Montana is that there's such... We're very purple. We're very purple in the sense that nothing is red and blue. Nothing, nothing is black and white. We can all disagree on whatever nationally is going on, but the Paradise Valley, the people in Bozeman, are going to hold on to that river. You know, stand in solidarity with each other on issues such as that, you know, and I don't want to toot my community's horn, but I think right now we all have a lot to learn from these ranchers who are getting along with the hippies, who are getting along with the fly fishermen. You know what I mean? This this entire group of people who are depending on this one resource and who are all standing in support of it. It's pretty cool. It is pretty cool. Um, Well, I guess. At this point, um, where is the fight for the Yellowstone? Where are we now? Where did we come from? What was the threat? And where do we stand now? We spoke about the 20-year moratorium. That's in comments section. That's in comments or it's about to be out of comments. But what's pretty amazing is we have two out of three of the Montana delegation who have introduced the Yellowstone Gateway Protection Act in both the Senate and the House. Um, our, uh, our, who's in my movie, our Senator John Tester is a huge proponent of this. He sees it. He, 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 he is 100% behind it. And to ha- it's, I mean, it's crazy to have a federal politician be, be speaking as if he's in, as in love with the same river that you're in love with is, it never happens, right? It's, it's, it's just kind of a weird thing. So for us, we see this as having a lot of momentum. Having him and our representative Gianforte has also introduced it in the House. And so we see it as a win in so many ways. We just need to get that through. And that takes our last uh, Senator Steve Daines. And so that's kind of what we're here to do right now is to put the pressure on him to sign on. And he, he has said he supports it, but we need some action there. And what's the the principle of the act, or kind of the the teeth of the act? What you what you would hope would happen uh, with that act uh, and gateway? It's a permanent ban on mining within the Paradise Valley on the edges of Yellowstone National Park. It's that it's it's that simple. Yep. I mean, it's sincerely that simple. Montanans are not anti-mining. We were I, the treasure state, right? We are not anti-mining. We just don't think this is the right place. And it's not just the river, it threatens one of the, one of the most special places in the United States. I mean, Yellowstone National Park is, a, is, is kind of what we all came from as outdoor people, right? I mean, that's where, kind of where this, this all started.
From the fight for the Yellowstone, we transition to the story of a Montanan and a miner, caught between his life making an honest living and his love for the pristine waters of his backyard. In watching the film, you feel the contradiction that comes with being a fisherman, living in a predominantly blue-collar town where resource extraction is the primary economic driver. R.C.'s work not only produced an insightful film, but offered a moment of introspection for the protagonist, which led to an intriguing and inspiring outcome. pretty small you talk to one fly fisherman and you kind of know them all in some ways so if we wanted to find a miner who fly fished there's a, there's a pretty good chance in montana that you'll stumble across one so that just kind of took calling a fly shop or calling some friends yeah. over in billings and seeing who we could dig up right yeah. but for uh it was a reddington branded piece which is also very cool that gave me the yeah. opportunity to do something that is a little bit weird and different and might not make everyone happy right but they were actually willing to say something um and what find your water contradictions is about is rich is a miner in the stillwater mine who he's a fly fisherman he identifies as a fly fisherman but uh, he is working, be he stands in the middle between two sides. So on his Billings mining side, kind of his friends from that side of the world, they make fun of him for being a fly fisherman. They think he's bougie. They think he's a dork. They, they you know, they, they, they think he's a hippie, right? Um, and then on the other side of the coin, us fly fishermen, we're generally pretty anti-mine. So if, if he walks into a fly shop and we knew he was a miner, we might give him some grief. So here's this guy who loves the sport and loves his time in the outdoors, but nobody approves of it, quote unquote, right? Um, stuck in the middle. <laughs> stuck in the middle. And that's exactly what we wanted to explore because it is, it. what a weird place to sit. And I think what we brought out from it and what Rich says himself is, who would you rather have down in those mines? Somebody who doesn't care? or someone who is thinking about getting on a river later this afternoon. Mm -hmm. And what I find interesting of that is, is, is clearly in the film, you're not trying to navigate towards an answer for him. It's just asking questions and elaborating on what it feels like to be stuck in the middle. After watching the film and finally meeting you in person a couple days ago, we, we, we talked a little bit more about Rich and what happened to him as a result of that experience and that, uh, I guess you want to say, is introspection as a result of being featured in that film. And, and um, what, what's Rich up to now? Or what, what, what feedback did he give you as a result of that process? So one of the last, as I said, fishing social, I get to be friends with these yeah, guys. You know, right. I get to spend a lot of time on the water. Yeah. One of our last days shooting, uh, I'm just drinking a beer with Rich and we're, yeah. ta we're talking about everything that kind of yeah. went on. And anyway. Um, and Rich said to me, he said, you know what I did, RC? Last week I went into the I went into the HR department and asked if there's any environmental quality jobs, environmental testing, environmental quality jobs that I could do at this mine, that I could do here. Same job, I can still put food on my family's table, but I'd like to do something with a little more value. I'd like to, I'd like to, I mean, first of all, mining is 
terrible on the body. You know what I mean? Those guys work so hard. They spend so much time underground, etc. So yeah, he needs to get out of that mind to survive, to, to continue walking, basically, in so many ways. But he also wants to do something of value. He sees the importance of having boots on the ground of somebody who cares about this water. And, and for me, it's, it's hard because stories move. That's the story that I'd want to tell. Right? You know what I mean? And I was like, you could have done this. Yeah, you you could have done, done this during the film. <laughs> exactly. Come on, man. Exactly. But, but, and I don't want to take credit for any of that, but yeah. I'm just so happy that we gave Rich personally like a space to reflect on what he does and not a, a judgment-free space basically right we just kind of asked him questions we kind of so you're doing this but this you know we challenged him a little bit and i'm i'm honored to have been able to do that especially to see with this decision and this trajectory that he said he might like to go on so yeah, yeah it was very cool to see that story move so far beyond what you originally thought it would be so well i appreciate your humility and not want to take credit for it but i think it deserves some recognition to be part of the process. And well, now you get to tell it. Now here. Yeah, right. <laughs> Didn't make the film cut, but here we are right. talking about it. Yeah, no. So great. Here it is. Yeah, that's great. That's uh, awesome. Well, um, cool. Well, I think the films are about to begin here a little bit, so we'll yeah. try to rat- wrap it up here, RC. Um, obviously, you found inspiration when you were younger um, to become a filmmaker and then found the inspiration to tell people's stories. And undoubtedly, you will continue to tell uh, engaging stories about people and their rivers uh, in, in the years to come. When you were sitting there and, and down in Grand Junction with the students, um, did you have some young kids come up to you for, for advice or kind of ask you how they can do what you do? You know, absolutely. And I think it, what I did to open it up is who, who likes movies, right? Yeah. And so, every, you know, all the yeah, hands yeah. go up. And then I ask, like, who who's, who's used a camera before? Who's taken still photographs? And, you know, mm-hmm. some hands went down, but yeah. a lot of them stayed up. And then asked who's made a film before. And I'm surprised there's probably 15, 20 hands in there. You know what I mean? So, yeah, they're, they're there. Yeah. They're there. And I think those stories of the younger generation, because those stories, those are the stories that we want to hear. That's the future right there and you know we kind of get old and crotchety and in our and in our ways and if we can keep encouraging those kids to tell stories beyond what we're capable of there's a lot of things that can happen there can be a lot of riches in the world or whatever right 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 so uh well at this point is is there Anything that you're at work at right now that you want to share or uh, perhaps just uh, let us know how people can best learn about you and find about your work uh, or how to track down uh, a viewing of uh, Last Call or Fight for the Yellowstone. Last Call or Fight for the Yellowstone has been traveling through Montana lately, which has been very cool. We've been going to probably towns that don't get a lot of film festivals, Columbia Falls, Kalispell, these places, and we're showing a film about about Montana to Montanans by Montanans and that's that's been that's been a privilege yeah. truly because that's you know you make you work for national brands you're usually talking to international national audiences it's kind of cool to talk to Montanans only you know I, I know my reach isn't as big blah 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 we don't we barely have a million people in the state but yeah. but I love Montana and I love Montanans and it's very cool to be able to speak to them directly as to us what's next 
Um, we're still working for Sage. We're still working for Reddington. So plenty of fishing, plenty, plenty of water, <laughs> right? Uh, uh, but we want to get into the public lands game. We want to broaden our reach because there's a lot more to tell. And I think there's a lot that hasn't been told. And I think there's some cool ways that we can say some things. Well, we hope to see some more of R.C.'s work at the service for our fight for public land soon. Thanks again, R.C., for your time. I'm looking forward to seeing what's up next. To hear or see more about R.C.'s latest work, go to tributariesdigitalcinema.com. There you will find the films mentioned here, Last Call, Our Fight for the Yellowstone, and Find Your Water, Contradictions, the story of Rich Schwend. I'll put some links in our show notes. All right, another update. We here at The Adventure Activist have been helping to coordinate a conference here in Sun Valley, July 31st to the August 3rd. Each year, approximately 250 leaders and innovators from business, government, philanthropy, advocacy, sports and entertainment, academia, the arts, philanthropy, and more gather for three days of inspiration and action to share strategies and catalyze some collaborations in an effort to accelerate the transformation to sustainable and secure communities. A lot of big names still on the docket, Microsoft, Leonardo DiCaprio Foundation, Hewlett Packard, Rolling Stone, The Economist. And this year, the adventure activists, we are happy to bring Patagonia, the Wilderness Society, Protect Our Winners, and Five Point Film Festival to the fold. To see more about the conference, please go to sunvalleyforum.com. We'd be happy to have you just for one night at our event with the Five Point Film Festival on August 3rd at Limelight Hotel, so come on by and say hi. If you want to keep up to date on what we're up to behind the scenes, go to our site, sign up for our newsletters, follow us on Instagram at The Adventure Activist or Twitter at Venture Activist. All right. Of course, usual business. Thanks to Evan Phillips for helping with the production of this episode. We connected through his amazing podcast, The Fern Line, about climbing in the great ranges of Alaska. Please check out his podcast or even better, purchase some of his music. He's got a new album, On Tap, Cabin Vibes, coming out soon. Thanks for listening to episode 12. We hope you've been with us from the beginning, but if not, check out the other episodes on our site, iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud. If this or prior episodes sparked conversation or inspired you on your next adventure project, you know, please let us know. You know, the best way to support this podcast is to tell a friend or two. Better yet, give us a good review, click some stars our way. Your show of support, as always, means so much. Thanks all. Keep adventuring.